0: The Boldly Now Show: Burning Desire, Big Ideas, Bold Action. This is Michael Sean Conway with Boldly Now. I have the great honor of introducing you to Tom Chi. Uh, Tom is one of the founding members of the Google X team. Uh, he's currently the managing partner at AppOne Ventures. Uh, Tom is also the uh, board Chair of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. Hey Tom, how are you doing out there in Hawaii? I'm doing pretty good. Tell me a little bit about you know what's going on for you. You know what's what's you know this time of of life like for you, uh, considering all that's been happening.
1: Well, I usually take a walk at sunrise and another one at sunset, um, and otherwise staying home working on launching this new venture firm and fund and. We're out there placing investments to help humanity become a net positive in the nature.
0: Um, and, and so what does that mean? You've, 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 you've been an innovator yourself. You've helped support you know, businesses that are doing uh, good working around the environment. You know, what, what does it take to actually set up a venture, and, and why did you do that? Why did you go through that, that process?
1: Well, yeah, I've been a lifelong inventor and then eventually technology executive and have run a bunch of projects over my career. Uh, started some companies. But as I was looking at how many things we needed to fix um, around climate and environment, and effectively, we need to redo all of industry in order to have a different relationship to nature. It started to look like maybe 20, 30, 50 important things to be working on. And I couldn't think of how to launch a company to go address 50 things. But I did know that from the venture perspective that you can go and uh, heavily invest in 50 things and mentor and support and help bring the right talent. So it seemed like the better bet if you were going to try to take on a lot of the threats of um, what it takes for humanity to be a
0: net positive. And how is that or has it it all changed? Uh, you know, in this time of the pandemic, has, has your activity or the things you're paying attention to, or even the importance of the work you're doing, uh, has it changed in the past couple of months?
1: So in a way, it's, it's only strengthened uh, because we're looking at the things that are kind of foundational to building a different relationship to nature and the industries that are effectively essential industries redoing food and agriculture, redoing materials and manufacturing, redoing a lot of these basic things. So um, unlike a lot of kind of retail businesses or, or, you know, startups that are kind of for a B2C type thing, then yeah, no, we still need all the things that our companies are working on. And it's, um, if anything, there's been more interest that has gone to them because Folks are looking for a different way.
0: Yeah, great. And um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, like what happens after uh, this, you know, the pandemic after the pandemic is um, subsided, uh, and this this notion of being you know, like back to normal, not back to normal. And there seems to be people, you know, proponents on both sides of that conversation. You know, what is it that you see uh, as an an impact from this period of time for people? Uh, and 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 in, and I guess and specifically for the kinds of work that you're doing, is you know is is there going to be a different world when we get to the other side of this pandemic?
1: Yeah, the world is fundamentally changed. And let me—I I know a lot of people have said that. Let me get really concrete about it. Um, really, there there's three different worlds slash types of truth. So there is the physical world. So And it's governed by physics. It it worked the way that it worked even before humanity existed. Then there's the world of society and community where within, you know, interrelations with people, we can set up particular ideas. Uh, Like the economy is basically an idea. It didn't exist, you know, before humans existed and kind of decided to work together in a particular way. Uh, And this is the layer that's gonna get disrupted a huge amount during this time period. And it's actually the one that we kind of think about the most when we think about whether life is normal or not. And then the third layer is basically personal truth and, and personal life. So within oneself, what is true? Now, I think what has been problematic is that we've built a type of middle layer, which is not really in concert with the, with the physical layer of nature and reality and isn't totally in concert with, uh, from the social justice side of personal truth for the majority of the world. Um, And I think like the oppression of women, for example, just straight out, you know, more than half the population is women. And yet, you know, from the personal truth side, we do a bunch of things that as a society that are not in concert with that. So I do think there's gonna be a very significant uh, need to go rewire that, that center that central piece in terms of what is society and community, how is it organized, where are the basic rules? Because a lot of what we've been doing around that, which is uh, there's a big chunk of it, which you can think about as the sphere of, of um, capitalist organization. So the reason that we're so fragile right now is we basically went for maximally efficient uh, global supply chains. And when you do it that way, efficient is basically a synonym for uh, fragile. And I think there's a lot of folks that are like, okay, well, uh, it's the end of capitalism then. But I, I don't really look at it like that. It's too much of a binary switch. I think that if you think about capitalism as a type of tool, as opposed to an ideology, which we've been treating it as an unquestionable ideology, if you look at capitalism as a tool, it's a tool that can be useful in some places for some things, uh, in spe- specifically to use competition to make something efficient, right. right? And there are some types of tasks in the world for which that tool is really useful, but it should not be treated like an ideology.
0: Yeah, I, I was just speaking with a, a colleague who's the um, chief economist for the International Trade, U- International Trade Federation Union, or Tr- International Trade Union Federation, uh, and she was negotiating uh, uh, some stuff with Zara, and the owner of Zara is one of the richest people in um, um, in Europe. And Zara is a fast fashion brand. And uh, she was saying that that they have three months of capital because they're they're so efficient, and all of their their fashion is uh, you know on demand, and uh, you know that the the time from design to market is so short that that they just had no way to prepare to having you know the the shops on Main Street close for two months. Um and they just are running out of cash and you look at that, it's like that's not fragility that's that's um, that's just breaking for people. It actually breaks for the business as well. And I think that's something that people are kind of misunderstanding like these big brands they they've built their house on on a fragile uh, model as well and and so that's why I think it's it's probably a better chance to 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 look at reexamining that because these businesses probably don't want to be subject to these kinds of, of destructive forces for themselves. And that's a, a you know, that's pro-capitalist wanting to fix fix the system in a way that works better as well.
1: Yeah, like I said, I connected with shipping, logistics, materials manufacturing. And one of the folks that I was recently interacting with was saying, well, it used to cost about a quarter million dollars to go take, you know, a 747 or 777, you know, cargo plane across the uh, across, you know, the Pacific. And now because the demand is so high and he's just trying to ship PPE over, right. you know, it's gone up to one and a half million dollars. And it's made it so that shipping the PPE is almost not profitable or he's losing a couple hundred K every time he does it. But he's still shipping it anyway because he knows that you need it to save people's lives. So that's a situation where it's like, okay, well, somebody's trying to do something that is clearly good. We've allowed market economics to go set the price, even though it obviously doesn't take more than you know, quarter million dollars to functionally operate that, but then we've allowed it to move into a zone where this person is losing money, uh, just because capitalism says that's fine.
0: Yeah, that that, uh, that brings to mind Kate Raworth's uh, work on donor Economics, um, where she talks about there are certain things that should just should not be in the domain of capitalism. Uh, you know, for example, basic medical services, uh, uh, access to food, access to to, um, to shelter. That, or at least, that market forces should not make it such that it that that we don't have access to those things. And so she, the, she argues that this kind of donor economics is this domain that should be not the the purview of of capitalism. And then there's this whole world where it can be uh, the 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 a capitalist space, a place for people to compete and have efficiencies and stuff. What do you think about those kinds of notions?
1: yeah very similar sort of sensibility that there should be a core set of things which are essential or in other parlance sacred things that we do not allow to be kind of maximized for profit or divided against and um, i think also some elements of the natural world uh is part of of that mix there the, the basic cycles that allow the rest of the ecosystem and really society to be healthy should also fall under the realm of the essential or sacred and we should work with it in a way that is, is smart but not in a way that's capitalistic
0: and i think there's a there's seems like there's a couple of models out there one is it like this model of um the earth or the natural resources having some kind of say or seat at the table in how they're used Um, And then of course there's this more radical notions that that basically many of the earth's resources should not be tapped at all Um, You know what? What are some kind of practical ways to even think about that? Like well, how do we use resources if it's not an an exploitative and competitive competitive way?
1: Yeah, I think the rights of nature movement is cool That's the you know having nature be a stakeholder that's on your board that has a seat at the table it fits reasonably easily in the concept of a board of directors or some of these other kind of operating, um, you know, fictions or, or structures that we've put together. Now, all that said, sacred is something different than that. Um, and the way that I look at this is that you could, let's take water for example, right? So there has been all this talk that, Uh, Water is going to be the next oil. There's going to be all these shortages. And therefore, you know, um, there's just going to be suffering from that. And you better go in there and buy up all those water rights. So amongst like private equity and folks that have a lot of uh, various folks that are are looking to make a lot of money. And there is motion there. Um, But actually, if you go to the pure physics of it, because the planet is warming, there's going to be more fresh water evaporating off of the ocean surface than there ever has been in in recent human history and because of it there's going to be more rain falling and actually because of it there's more fresh water than there has ever been available the reason that there's any sort of shortage is we have uh, corrupted the hydrological cycles we've poisoned the rivers and streams we have you know damaged the soil so that that you know rainfall leads to runoff as opposed to recharging aquifers we've pumped our aquifers you know to critical levels and really what that means is there's a type of sacred cycle that we should be paying attention to and if we were to go and be on the side of that cycle we would have more fresh water than we'd ever have actually partially because of global warming um, but because if we take a different lens on it and think about this as a limited commodity like gold, and we need to go buy up acre feet, you know, uh, from each other as property, then yes, we will absolutely you know, buy and sell that to our doom.
0: Great. Now, you know, we've been talking around what I really believe is kind of the central impulse for your uh, your career at this point in in life, and I'd just like you to share us a little bit about. No, how did you come to this notion of humanity as a net positive to um, to the planet, and uh, in, and what does that mean? And 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 if if I wanted to participate in that, what are the areas I would look at?
1: Yeah, so let me break it down really concretely because being a net positive to nature, what is nature even? So relative to the thesis that I'm working on, nature can be simply defined as air, water, soil, and biodiversity. And you can imagine that all of those things um, kind of grow and flow in particular cycles. So obviously, there's the cycle of life and the food chain on the biodiversity side. But you can think about the the movement of air, the circulation of air as a type of cycle. You can think about the hydrological patterns of water as a type of cycle. You can think of the growth of topsoil and the way that it is, you know, it encourages uh, terrestrial. Um, plants and biomass and uh, as a type of cycle. And right now, every industry that we have on the planet has some sort of footprint across all of those. We're paying a lot more to the air one right now relative to greenhouse gases uh, because we basically say, look, there's a type of imbalance that we're creating through the excess production of greenhouse gases in the air. But if you were to kind of scoot back and say, no, actually, you have a footprint across all four. Every industry has got a footprint across all four. And, you know, in the absence of industry, there is a way that those cycles run healthily. But in the presence of industry, we actually have a choice. We can make it so that we, um, you know, corrupt or damage or pollute those cycles. Or you can set up industry where it encouraged those cycles to run in a healthy way. So for example, you can do agriculture in a way that builds topsoil as opposed to depletes it. And now you're kind of on the side of nature in so doing. Uh, similarly, you can go and you know, develop forest products that encourage you to go maintain uh, entire ecosystems and you're creating habitat and you're sustaining habitat as opposed to uh, you know, um, slash and burning a rainforest in order to go clear some land for soybeans. Uh, You can go work with hydrological cycles. So, you know, in hydrology, the rain falls and because of gravity, it eventually makes it to the sea. You can think about the, um, you know, how much value the droplet of water has between the mountaintop and the sea as its own type of optimization problem, where this drop of water, you know, could just immediately be pumped into some industry that we we have, and there's one set of organisms that benefit, and there's relatively few organisms. Or you could say from this this gravity journey from the top of the mountain to the sea, you might actually be able to benefit millions of organisms. And that's a thing that industry can also have a hand in. We can go design our systems so that, you know, the, you know, in the process of a drop of water flowing or a photon coming from the sun and hitting the earth. We try to, to benefit the maximum number of organisms on the way between the higher energy state and the lower energy state. Um, and it, effectively, it's a type of, like, the engineer and scientist Me thinks of that as just as straightforward an optimization as what we've currently done, uh, which is less of a real optimization. Uh, the optimization that we've, we've currently done is an optimization around capital, which is an idea. Capital is as real as we think it to be. And we decide collectively that it is, I think of the optimization of a photon as being extremely real, way more real than an economy. And, um, and the optimization of a water droplet way more real than an economy. Now, if you build an economy off of things that are that real, then it it ends up being way more robust. And, And one other thought I'll put out there, you know, I think if we were to move in that direction, all that is happening is we are making something that is akin to what life is. Life could simply be described as the algorithm for savoring every photon, right? Like as life progresses and we, and it diversifies and it, you know, goes into every pocket of and every biome, then what it's doing is finding new ways to savor photons. Right. And us as a, Civilization has savored capital, which is basically a, a concept. Uh, it's not as real as a photon. So part of what we're talking about here is just rebuilding it on, and you, and pointing our creativity at something that's real, as opposed to um, a collective fiction.
0: And if we were to to do this, um, you know, this this notion of climate change, uh, what happens to that? I mean, really feels often that the challenges with the water and the oceans and, 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 and topsoil and clean air. Uh, and, and, you know, right now, just incredibly decreasing biodiversity. It just feels like sometimes like it's a bit of a hopeless case. You know, if we could adopt some of the things you're talking about, would that, would that change?
1: It's definitely not a hopeless case. Um, the, the cycles of nature want to run well and we, you know, actually I think the pandemic is showing a great example of even if we pause for a second, you know, the cycles of nature are, are wanting to kind of swell and come back hmm. and imagine the industry that we created was not about suppressing that it was about going along with it or even amplifying it. You know, how quickly an eco like some of the industries I work in are about active ecosystem restoration. We have drones that can plant 120 trees a minute and we plant, we don't plant any monocultures. We plant these diverse ecosystems and you see them starting to come up. You say, wow, I mean, we're actually not doing most of this work. The seeds are doing the work. The soil is doing the work. The soil microbiome is doing the work. The birds that are coming back, are doing the work. And, you know, of course we are through industry doing a little piece of it. But imagine like all of our industries were basically doing these high leverage things where nature is on our side. Nature is the intrinsic multiplier. Because people are always looking for leverage from the the economy and finance side. They're like, well, or from the business side broadly. What do you have that gives you competitive leverage on these other things? What if the natural cycles of nature was your leverage? Because Mm -hmm. nature wants to do all these things that are ultimately very healthy and self-sustaining, What if you said, well, we'll get at the beginning of that chain and just help that along. And now that the aquifer is restoring itself because of some changes to agriculture, well, great. Now we're, we're full to the brim of something that is extremely valuable that we can take part in for a long time.
0: Fantastic. And, um, uh, you know, in regards to that for just, you know, our audience, you know, what can they do about this? I mean, like, what you're sa- saying sounds really cool, but you know, many people aren't already engineers or, or captains of industry. Like, how how could they get involved, or or what are the things they can look to that they can support um, this more um, um, benefit to the planet version of the economy, or economics, or business, or or the things we put our life up to. So, definitely something that we make a
1: choice about every day is the stuff that we eat, and animal agriculture. And kind of the associated businesses around it are taking up a huge percentage of the earth's surface. So agriculture overall uses uh, 50% of the habitable land on the planet. And about, you know, three quarters of that is animal agriculture. So we're at this point in time where we are starting to get really interesting alternatives. You know, you've got your Beyond Meats and Impossible, and really the, um, yeah, I was I was speaking at this uh, future of agriculture conference, and they were showing the two hundred food companies that are up and coming right now that have products in market that uh, have got way less of a profile on the earth. And I know, you know, there's already been pushback. It's like, well, is the Impossible Burger that much healthier? Da da da. Well, I'll tell you for sure, it's healthier for the planet by by a good amount. Um, and I think that I, I don't want to shut down the discussion. Let's use that discussion and let's use our dollars to go and get the next one, which is way healthier for the planet and is way healthier for human health. Uh, and it is a little bit healthier for human health. It's just not radically, it's not like you just switched over and ate a plate of salad instead of a burger. Right. Cause there's a lot of saturated fat. That is true. Uh, but like, doesn't mean that that's the end point for these things. This is the beginning point for these things. And you know, if we can change the stuff that we're eating, then that is a relatively large impact. And then, and it's a, one that you do every day. And also, on the everyday standpoint, is the way that you go run your household. So, this sounds dumb, but if you can turn down the temperature of your hot water heater to the temperature you like to take showers at, as opposed to scalding hot saves a huge amount of energy. Um, and it's a thing that takes you five minutes. If you're able to go switch out your bulbs to, to LED bulbs as opposed to uh, incandescent or even fluorescence, uh, then can be somewhere between two to eight times less energy that you're using on that front. And lighting is one of the major energy costs for a house. So between heating and lighting, that's a lot of the stuff. And you can do that immediately in your house. And then beyond that, there's the bigger changes. So there's changes like uh, electrification. So you can buy an electric car. And if you're worried about the material footprint of electric cars, you can buy a used electric car. And then there was no new material that was used for it. And your consumables, like you're not using, um, you know, petroleum products to run it anymore. Um, And then there's the See, there's these weird cynical counter arguments. You're like, well, what if you have a coal-fired power plant that's powering your grid to go do your car? Well, do the calculations. You still end up, you know, somewhere between three to 10 times better. I know for my electric car, I'm using about, I have one-tenth the carbon footprint, uh, given how the electricity is generated in my area compared to when I was just burning gasoline. And a 90% reduction matters. Like, if people are being cynical about it, you should ask them for the numbers. Is most of the time people are being cynical. They're being cynical in a way where they haven't really done the work.
0: Great, and if I'm if I'm a young person, or maybe I'm, you know, just graduating high school or in college, and I'm interested in, in maybe building myself a career where I can help to work on some of these things. You know, what 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 do you, what would you suggest for young people to do to look to be able to be part of the solution of making uh, humanity a net positive to the to the planet?
1: Yeah, I think. If you are looking toward industries that have that intention, or at least part of that intention, that helps a lot. And then, relative to the big changes that are happening in this century, there's going to be a lot of automation. So, um, I'm actually launching a course where I'm teaching folks, um, you know, the, it's like the future skills toolbox, you know, the skills that you would need for the 21st century and beyond. And this is just to give you some of the stuff that 's in it, like they're, they're like you need to do the things that machines are not going to be better uh, at than humans. so this is creativity, compassion, uh, critical thinking, and community. So I call it the four Cs, and you know those are, are skills that you can be personally developing, and those are skills that in the careers that you, that you build, make sure there's at least some component of them that is using one or more of the four C's because it means that it is less likely to be eroded away by automation um, over the coming decades.
0: Great, that's a a great announcement, happy to hear that. Where where will this course be available?
1: Um, You can just go to my website, tomchi.com, and
0: I'll link it from there. Great, and uh, Boldly Now I'm sure we'll be be, uh, hosting this conversation and helping people get access to, to that course as well. Really excited about that. Um, I want to go back to this one little point that that you that occurs to me is is really, really problematic and really sh- has shown up in the um, in the time of the pandemic as uh, a major major breakdown for just people at large. And that is that that it seems like over the past 15, 20 years has been a growing anti-scientific sentiment. Um, that somehow scientists can't be trusted or they're uh, they're not good people or or they don't actually have a, a seat at the table making decisions. And we've seen a lot of, of you know, just really bad science in the, the this pandemic era and and how actually even bad science for the past five or 10 years set up the situation for this to create great suffering where we could have made other decisions to maybe not have this arrive this way. You know, what do you think about that? And, and what are some of the remedies I and mean, how can people kind of catch themselves in anti-scientific thinking or, or get, get more clear about the distinction between, you know, kind of of uh, of politically influential uh, information or actually really scientific information.
1: Yeah. So, earlier in the conversation, I was talking about these three layers of reality that we are existing in. So one of them is the physical reality of the world, of which science is the best way to go make sense of it. Right, we can understand, you know, how the planets go around the sun, we can understand you know, how these tiny natural processes work, we can understand the function of a virus or a bacteria that is, you know, spreading around the world. Um, Then there's another realm, which is the realm of society and community. And then there's a third realm, which is the, you know, personal uh, life and truth. And what's happening here is the realm of society and community is basically trying to assert its sensibility of truth over everything else. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be fine if, um, if it has a deep respect for, well, I'm gonna assert some things about nature, but I'm gonna be curious enough about nature that I'll just make sure that they're true before I make that into economic policy, environmental policy, you know, et cetera. Uh, but what happens sometimes is within the, the space of that second chunk, society, we also have this concept of power. And you know, there is a way that we've organized power where people will kind of enforce ongoing rules for society, which may not be in, co- in concert with personal truth, may not be in concert with the, the truth of the environment or the physical world. So on the personal truth side, you have the entire civil rights movement. You have women's rights, you know, um, minority rights, LGBT rights, and it's like, well, look, there's personal truth here. And then society doesn't like that. Think it's a danger for women to vote. Thinks it's a danger for schools to be integrated. Thinks it's a danger for queer folks to, to get married. And therefore, let's exert our power and pretend that those things aren't real. Let's pretend your personal truths aren't real so that we can go advance something. And what we're getting relative to the pandemic and science is that same sort of sensibility asserting itself on nature. It's like, let's pretend we're not poisoning the rivers. Let's pretend the virus works in a way that it's different than the way that it works. And the problem with this kind of central thing, try, you know, central type of truth, trying to dominate the other types of
0: truth is that it just doesn't stand. Yeah, well said. Uh, 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 one of the philosophers I have a lot of respect for, Warner Earhart says, uh, you know, you, when you take all your petty complaints out, out uh, outside at night, you can shout at the universe all you want it really is not going to care. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think there's a little bit of that, that quality of, especially on the, the kind of global conceptual level. I mean, there's the kind of our experiential or phenomenological moment to moment as lived life where we have these experience. And, and that tends to be a little bit more in, in keeping with the natural and the real world, but there's this other, you know, world of ideas or world of culture and society where, we can really spin out quite a ways away from what the universe cares about at least uh, and, and quite possibly um, you know, get, get spun out of, away from the thing that gave rise to consciousness in the first place. And uh, that's interesting. It's interesting we have the, the kind of freedom to create wild stories about the world and, and, um, and about humanity. Uh, regardless of if it if it jives with uh, the underlying reality of things, um,
1: and the and, reason it doesn't come into question all the time is a lot of stories are of, not of significant consequence to either you know right. physical truth or personal truth, and some stories are honestly real fun. It's like hey, let's throw this together, uh, let's have a festival. Well, cool, that's a fun story that we can have about the cool things that we do there. Yeah, and. And also, every once in a while, we come up with some stories where it's like this is the superior race, and that you know definitely goes against natural and personal truth. Or uh, the economy is more important than the biosphere. And it's like oh, that you're going to run into some real problems there. So like I don't know, five ten percent of the time we come up with stories which just smash headlong into truths that we're not going to be able to move. And I think we get out of practice because so many of the stories in the middle are kind of inconsequential.
0: Yeah. And if we can uh, use a little imagination, maybe we can create new stories that uh, give us more alignment with the natural world uh, and with, uh, and personal truth. I mean, we can, we have, we're free to reinvent all of this stuff Just somehow we get stuck in arguments about which one of these stories are more true versus just saying, Hey, storytelling is really cool. Why don't we, why don't we participate in a, a beneficial or benevolent style of storytelling or one that motivates us to uh, uh different states or you know a different future perhaps
1: yeah maybe that's the thing that we can end on. i, I spoke at this conference and one of the things i talked about was agriculture and at the end there's some q a and somebody raised their hands like but how can you do it there's big agribusiness like you know it's like uh, there, there's, and they kind of listed all these reasons why it was going to be hard to move off of unsustainable agriculture. And I was like, you know, we just invented unsustainable agriculture like fifty years ago. Like, why would you think that it's impossible for us to do something different? It, it's. I think it's like when we're born into a particular way that things are working, we just think that that's the way that it's going to have to work forever. I mean, the corporation wasn't even invented until the the, you know, the sea voyages um you know whatever 600 years ago or something so you look at that it's like okay well capitalism corporations it's immovable i don't know we made that stuff up five or six hundred years ago you know uh, agriculture it's like immovable like we 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 have to grow in this way it's like no we made that up 50 years ago like all these things that we feel like are uh, damaging uh, even some of the things about the wealth gap between the richest ceos and it's like, Oh no, this is just how this stuff works. It's like, we changed the laws on that. And, you know, we changed the cultural practice on that really in the last 25 years, even if you scoot back 30 years ago, there was not nearly as big a difference between CEO pay and line worker pay. Right. So,
0: Great. Tom, last thing, Tom, um, you know, what do you see for the future for humanity? What are we going to, where are we going to arrive in a hundred years? And uh, you know, what's, you know, like kind of what's your most inspiring vision for that
1: well i think that we're going to have figured out a lot of this stuff in 100 years and remember you know 150 years ago medicine was just putting leeches on people so like we can absolutely go and like balancing humors so like we can absolutely make some real progress in 100 150 years so if you scoot forward 100 150 years from now I think some of the things that we've been talking about this conversation are just you know, head smackingly obvious that you can't go entertain a type of truth that doesn't work with natural truth, you know, that, that intrinsically oppresses people. Like that's a head smacker. Like we'll look back on our civilization at this point and be like, how could we even believe that the stuff that we believed back then, how could we think like the leachers and the humors and the, you know, a phlegmatic personality or whatever was a thing. Like that's just a, that's a head smacker. And similarly, you know, 150 years from now, it's like, how did they think that by oppressing a bunch of people that their society would be healthier? How did they think that just ignoring, you know, the functions of nature and designing an economy was going to work at all? Um, And it'll be head smackers. So in a way like we, we won't even be heroes. Like anybody that's working on this stuff now, the, the, they'll just look as, at us as the people that stopped being head-smackingly dumb.
0: Um, so you're, you're pretty confident then that we're not going to have some you know, future where the robots end us or the zombies take over? Mm, well, I work on the
1: robots, and we can decide what to put them on. So I think if, if they destroy us, it's not because they have any intention to destroy us. It's because we're dumb and we put them in the wrong places like the most advanced artificial intelligence in the world right now is serving you advertising and trading stocks. And actually those are very dangerous places for them right. because they're serving you advertising and it affects human psychology in a way, which is kind of an uncontrolled experiment pointed toward commerce. It's like, well, is that really that important? Is like mental health, you know, uh, less important than commerce? So when you see depression and anxiety of social media users going up, that is the output of a commerce-first approach to artificial intelligence pointed at the human psyche. It's, it's, it's a terrible prioritization.
0: And that seems like uh, at a fundamental level, if we're going to look at redesigning, it's not even at the beginning systems we need to resign, be redesigning, but, but stacks of values. You know, we're, we're trading... Ad revenue for psychological health. Well, there's a there's a, a continuum between that. A 100% protecting psychological health, 100% uh, uh, caring about ad revenue. Um, and right now, those those decisions are are being made um, not consciously. They're they're being made by by you know value systems that are in the, the 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 network that are not being considered by human beings. We're not saying, hey, we'd rather have people have horrible psychological health and more ad dollars. It's just a, 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 if you will, a, a value state that's that's grown up in the system ad hoc and 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 people are profiting from there. People have incentive for that. So it seems like if we're going to redesign systems, we have to start looking at the values underlying them. And I think you, your work around the planet is a, 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 people's a net positive. The planet sets a value stack. It's really clear that you have to change your values in order to be able to achieve those kinds of things.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, we can talk about it as values. And maybe that's functionally what it'll feel like. But I also want it to be clear that this is just very practically grounded. Like you can measure all four of those things, air, water, soil, biodiversity. Yeah. If we care about psychological health, it's actually relatively easy to go measure. You know, right. okay, let's take a cohort of a thousand people. Let's, you know, check in with a survey every two weeks about a couple measures of psychological health you know, for a group that has been using social media heavily versus not. And let's go and keep doing that as a longitudinal experiment, you know, and relative to different ad policies. And we can see whether, you know, we should change things or not. Right now, like we're getting to a big enough breaking point and that's becoming the thing where it's like, oh, we need to change things. But like in practice, if you cared about psychological health, even an iota, and this is not even related to, oh, this is some deep core value or whatever. It's like if you cared about it at all, if you understood that there was any societal benefit, psychological health, then it would not be a very expensive experiment for you to go put it in the mix and at least know what you were doing as opposed to operating blind and operating, you know, ad revenue first.
0: Uh, Tom, thank you so much. We've spent a, a lot of wonderful time here. And as usual, um, I come away from our conversations enriched. Uh, you impact my thinking, uh, not only about the future, but really about my world today. Uh, I want to really thank you for, uh, I would say, your your calm r- rationality. You, you come from a very centered place with the, the things you share with people. Uh, and I really feel you provide a a place for us to kind of understand the world a little bit better. Uh, and understand our place and the actually what, what some of the functions are that are causing it to feel so crazy right now. So thank you for all the work you're doing. Uh, thank you for uh, the investment into the planet. Uh, and, and just thank you for being a great friend.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire, big ideas, and bold action. Be sure to download Boldly You, in the app store google play or online at bold.ly slash y-o-u boldly you is an app and learning platform igniting your burning desire big ideas and bold action generating a future for a thriving humanity